0: Alright, well hello, I'm Shani and I'm Maria, and we are going to talk today about the exciting and riveting and rather traumatic history of mental health treatment and how we um, treat mental health today, and we're going to make sure we definitely put a recreational therapy spin on it because we are recreational therapy students and that's kind of the assignment and we want to get our points.
1: Yes, so I feel like mental illness is something that has always had sort of a stigma around it and I think mainly that's due to the history of mental illness and the way that it was treated and viewed way back when. So I think we're going to start by diving into a little bit of the history of mental illness, starting with religion and how that affected the way that mental illness was viewed as well as treated. So the idea that religion and mental health has always been in conflict is still very prevalent today. I think that religion still affects the way that we view mental health and mental illness. I agree. In the past, mental illness was considered witchcraft or demonic or a moral issue by a lot of different people, especially religious people. And a lot of people back in the Middle Ages didn't really consider that natural causes could lead to mental illness. So they saw it as this kind of otherworldly thing that was caused by something other than a natural thing. And so many mentally ill people were called insane or demonic and were tortured or even burned at the stake. And people also believed that sin could lead to mental illness, and I think that kind of goes back to religion. And it's really interesting to look into, actually. During the early years of the Middle Ages, the community as a whole took care of the mentally ill, and then later on, asylums were developed to house People who were mentally ill because it was just becoming too much for the community. And they didn't really know how to treat it or how to take care of these people. And so people in asylums were treated very poorly. They were called mad, insane, lunatics. And a lot of religious people who worked in these asylums believed that mentally ill people were possessed by demons. That caused them to act the way they did. And so, of course, attitudes toward the mentally ill varied from place to place. Like, for example, in Germany, communities completely cast out the mentally ill by whipping them out of town because they just <laughs> yeah, they just <laughs> did not want to deal with it. And, of course, there's still no single paradigm for the explanation of mental illness. A lot of it is still kind of a mystery, and there's still tons and tons of research that needs to be done. So it's no wonder that before technology and research existed, so many people of different cultures viewed and explained mental illness in different ways pretty crazy. It really is.
0: Um, So another interesting thing, at least in Europe, uh, the Catholic Church played a big role in mental health, um, treatment, its view, etc. Just because the Catholic Church was a huge power. Um, Still is today, but not to the extent it was in Mm -hmm. earlier Europe. Um, One of the treatments that was used from a religious, spiritual type view that of exorcism, which the idea behind that was to get evil spirits out of someone's body.
1: Um,
0: I found one website that said people from um, Greek, Chinese, Hebrew, and Egyptian cultures used exorcism as well as um, European with um, Christian influence. Exorcisms could include flogging, um, making people drink something that tastes really bad, um, prayer, starvation, Kind of magical type things going on uh, just doesn't sound very fun for the most
1: part. Yeah, along with that a lot of Catholics were trying to find a <coughs> scapegoat for the different causes of plague that was happening at the time of mm-hmm. all of this and so they were convinced that the possessed people or the people who were mentally ill were the causes of this plague and all the people's difficulties <coughs> so they would blame it on them. Because they just didn't understand. They didn't have the research. And so for the next 300 years, there were witch hunts and all of these things that were designed to pretty much seize those that were thought to be possessed by the devil or by demons. And so up to 50,000 people, I believe, mostly women, were tortured and killed by these Catholics. It's insane. Yeesh. Um, you know that, I mean, that even sounds like Salem.
0: Yeah. And like, what was it, 1600s, Salem Witch Trial, same thing, yeah. people, and I don't know if it was so much mental health, but that idea of, you're a witch, we're gonna kill you.
1: Yeah, it's I think a lot of it, they just normal. didn't know what was happening. Right, <laughs> and just...
0: I mean, mental health presentation, mental health illness presentation be really scary. Like, if you don't know, and somebody thinks they're hearing voices, I can, you might yeah. wonder where that's coming from, and... Yeah. I mean, a devil might have been the easiest, most logical explanation at the time. Yeah, for sure. Um, Another thing I just thought was interesting, I wondered, and I think it's probably true, um, in the Bible it'll talk about um, when Christ was on the earth and he was healing people that were possessed with devils, basically, is how it's described. I can't help but wonder if some of those people, or all of them, they just simply had a mental health issue. And that was the best way they could describe yeah. it then as well. And that's, you know, before the Middle Ages even. Well, and you can go way back in history. If you're okay if we start moving into trepanation. Yeah, let's do it. I don't want to kill your thunder, Maria. No, um, you're good. So let's make sure well, let's, Yeah. So trepanation is basically where you cut a hole in someone's skull. Um, which... Is unique treatment for people. <laughs> um, I mean, we have. I can't tell you exactly how old they are, but I was learning about the history of trepanation, or at least discovering that people did this mm-hmm. and such. Because um, um, I'm a geek and listen to podcasts about mental or medical history, but um, just kind of talk about how they found these skulls with extra holes in them. Obviously, the ones that aren't naturally there. And yeah. looking at them, you could tell the people. Survive by the way the bone healed or growed, whatever, growed, grew. <laughs> um, and it's thought, at least for the trephination that was done a long time ago, a lot of it is just theory, but it could have been treatment for headaches, seizures, possession, and mental illness. Wow. Um,
1: so, anyway, that's
0: kind of a crazy, well, what's crazy to me is that people lived, especially back then, like with infection and everything. Yeah. But they can tell they li- think you just. Not to mention having your brain exposed to the world doesn't sound like a good idea but, I mean, yeah, I don't know. That's just me. So that's just kind of a little bit I had on. Trepanation, which I think was also used in the
1: Middle Ages. Middle Ages, I yeah. Okay, yeah. And I'll go into lobotomy in a second, but another thing that I think is interesting with trepanation as well as lobotomy is that it was used for such a wide variety of different symptoms and illnesses it's crazy that they thought that this one procedure could cure all these many different things. You just don't hear about stuff like that nowadays, so it's really interesting to learn about.
0: There definitely are cure-alls today. I think they're just less extreme. De- yeah. Like, definitely less like extreme. Like people, I don't know, maybe the keto diet. I don't know if it's a cure-all, but people are like, oh my gosh, I'll help you lose weight. It wasn't invented to help people yeah. lose weight, but we're like, oh my gosh, or essential oils. They're the worst. Oh. I have a whole soapbox about it. We don't
1: need to get into it, but they're definitely no, I totally cure-alls agree. of today. Love it. Alright, so let's jump into lobotomy a little bit. So lobotomy is basically a neurosurgical operation that involves severing connections in the brain, mainly the prefrontal lobe. And that's where our personality, expression, decision-making, and social behavior lies. And so physicians basically thought that if we could disconnect those connections in our brain, that... Um, We would damage the connections and the bad behaviors would stop. And so basically there were two different types of lobotomies. There was the prefrontal lobotomy, which is where a doctor would drill a hole into the side or the top of the skull to get to your frontal lobe. There's also the transorbital lobotomy, which is where they access the brain through your eye sockets. Pretty pretty (laughs) controversial. And they seem so controversial, but they were actually performed by doctors for over 20 years as treatment for mental illness. Huh. So, basically, what well, what do you think happened after they did all this? Do you think well, that it worked?
0: I, From what we've talked about and everything, I don't think for the most... I mean, I'm not going to say it never improved anything, but I'm sure people came out with, like, obviously
1: deficits, different personalities, yeah. stuff like that. Absolutely. So... It all began with a doctor from Switzerland who began removing parts of the brain of patients with schizophrenia and related symptoms and disorders. And he actually noted that his patients would calm down after these operations. But one of his patients died, and another one committed suicide shortly after. So who knows if it was actually working the way he thought it was, (laughs) but around 50,000 lobotomies were performed in the US alone. And the main result was, like you said, loss of personality and mental functioning. And the practice luckily began to subside in the mid-1950s when medications were developed that were much, much more effective. And I actually found an article from the New York Times from 1937 that states that the following would benefit from a lobotomy. Tension, apprehension, anxiety, depression, insomnia, Suicidal ideations, delusions, hallucinations, crying spell. Crying spell. You're
0: crying too much. <laughs> Here's melan- a
1: knife. <laughs> <Get> <laughs> melancholia, me. obsessions, panic states, disorientation, psychaglasia, which is pains of psychic origin, nervous <laughs> indigestion, and hysterical paralysis. So, so many different things probably they Probably cause paralysis. <laughs> Right. <laughs> I mean, maybe not. No, it but did. it did. Okay. Oh yeah. Okay. Along with the loss of mental functioning, it caused loss of physical functioning as well. Because you were severing the brain.
0: Right. Yeah. That's a it's crazy, but unique idea mm-hmm. that someone came it's up with It's just so once.
1: interesting that they thought that this one operation could cure so many different symptoms. It's really interesting. Hmm. Alright. Alright. Um so another a huge well let
0: me back up. The theory of the four humors in the body um, was prevalent for a lot of medical history. Um, It originated with Hippocrates, a Greek, I don't know, probably physician if he's coming up with this, um, later perpetuated by Galen, and the basic idea is that your body has four humors, which I think kind of substances, I want to say they're like liquids, maybe that's not right, but there's blood, black bile, yellow bile, and phlegm, Mm
1: -hmm. and that
0: Any sort of illness, disease, mental health, or physical health was basically caused by uh, an imbalance of these four humors. Oh, yeah. Interesting. Um, So that interestingly um, led to people maybe taking stuff to puke or to have diarrhea to try to balance out these um, humors, as well as bloodletting. And bloodletting has been used in history. It's like major cure-all in air quotes (laughs) cure-all. Um, I mean, that you could you, have bloodletting performed for freaking acne, um, yeah. seizures, stroke, as well as mental health, treating mental health. Um, so, again, this interestingly goes into how the Catholic Church and religion kind of played into um, mental health treatment and health treatment in general. Um, in 1163, the Catholic Church decided that they were going to move away from bloodletting, and I'm not sure if that meant that... Everyone who does it is a sinner or where they went with that because it still persisted. Um, Barbers, barber surgeons took up the role of bloodletting. And interestingly, a physician could write a prescription saying that this person needs bloodletting and then they'd go to a barber surgeon and do that. Um, And then, can we go back to religion, something else? Because we skipped this and it's too good to skip because it makes me laugh. let's talk about it. Um, Another thing was um, they didn't... The church viewed looking inside human bodies for science as wrong. Um, for doctors to go inside someone's body was like profane. Um, mm-hmm. The church was like, "Don't do that." Um, so King Louis the what number is Fourteenth. He had an anal fistula.
1: Oh my gosh, what is that? <laughs> it's
0: basically a a hole or connection between things where it shouldn't be. So this is okay, okay. Down where no one wants to work, yeah. and they had. <laughs> He had people working on there trying to fix him, and they just couldn't. And finally they decided, like, they needed a surgeon. And I just thought that was a really interesting story, because, like, (laughs) even the king, they're like, you know, physicians aren't going to do this. It's not the coolest thing to go inside someone, but this isn't going away. So they went for Anyway, there's a whole story about it, and it's kind of gross, because they're, like, where they're operating. But I thought it was really funny. That's how I, one of the places where I heard about, like, Doctors like it was not okay for them to be inside of people, yeah. And so instead, you go to your local barber surgeon, and oh my it's an interesting story. If you're curious, you should look into it. Yeah, if that sounds Anyway, I just want to know about that because I thought it was funny because I'm a kid at heart. <laughs> anyway, <Wow. laughs> um, do you have one you want to go on to? go? Excuse me, want to go on to?
1: Yeah, let's jump to hydrotherapy. So, when I when we first started talking about hydrotherapy in class the first thing that my mind went to was a hot tub and like sitting in a hot tub to ache your or not to ache to soothe your aches and to soothe your pains and your muscles and I mean that's kind of what it was but not not so much so basically hydrotherapy began gaining popularity in the early 20th century it was used at many different institutions and asylums um, a lot of institutions started installing these communal baths to help children who had suffered from muscular and nerve damage as a result of TB and polio, because that was spreading like wildfire at this time. Mm -hmm. And so basically, it involves using water to treat diseases and ease physical pain. It's one of the oldest forms of water treatment. And let me find this little excerpt that I found that talks about it. So this is from the London Asylum website. And the London Asylum is one of the oldest, biggest and most widely known asylums in history. And it's, they actually used hydrotherapy in their asylum. Mm-hmm. And so they have this little excerpt online that talks about um, what they did. So basically the reason why they would thought water would be so effective is because it could be heated or cooled to different temperatures which when applied to skin could produce various reactions throughout the rest of the body, which is interesting to Hmm. think about. So one of the main benefits of this hydrotherapy treatment was its ability to take effect really quickly. And it could be accomplished through baths or sprays. And warm baths were used to treat patients suffering from insomnia who are having trouble sleeping. That one actually kind of makes sense. As long as they don't fall asleep and,
0: like in air water.
1: <laughs> the thing is though is that a patient could be expected to be in this bath treatment for several hours up to several days. Yeah, so okay. They'd be left in the water for days at a time and sometimes overnight.
0: Mm.
1: And these were considered the most effective when or these were considered to be the most effective when held in a quiet room with little light and audio stimulation. So basically they were just left alone in a dark room in water for days. That sounds boring. Yeah, it doesn't sound very fun. So a lot of patients would just kind of fall asleep, and the bath temperatures typically range from 92 to 97 degrees, which is pretty warm. But they they weren't warm enough to actually cause injury, like burns. So at least they have that going for them. (laughs) And then they used cold water to treat patients with manic depressive psychosis. Or... The ones showing signs of excitement and increased motor activity, and so the application of cold water slowed down the blood blood flow to the brain, which decreased their mental and physical activity. Oh, I guess. Which kind of makes sense. Yeah. Are if you were like, sprayed with cold water, you you kind of freeze up and not really
0: do a lot, right?
1: Yeah, I know. And, like, yeah. No, go ahead.
0: The cold cold water can or being cold can help like preserve like you. You do like you. I guess it'd be your metabolism slows down. I mean, you could have someone. Yeah. Anyway, we
1: don't need to get into that. But yes, <laughs> it's just it's interesting because hydrotherapy worked to an extent, mm-hmm. and or at least it led to something that worked, which is aquatic therapy, which is something that we use today,
0: mm-hmm. not
1: only in rec therapy but in physical rehab. A lot of physical therapists use. Um, Aquatic therapy to rebuild muscle memory and improve circulation, muscle rea- relaxation, um, decreased pain, mm-hmm. stuff like that. It's and good for so, like physical
0: therapy, I'm sure, too, yeah. because there's less weight on your muscle or yeah, joints.
1: I'm not sounding technical at all today, <laughs> no, but you know what I'm trying to say. <laughs> <You're> good. <laughs> and yeah, these benefits are geared more towards physical health rather than mental health. But there is a little bit of research out there that supports aquatic therapy for mental health. Um, i actually found this article that talks about um, mental health for Parkinson's disease after re- receiving aquatic therapy. Huh. A lot of patients with Parkinson's have like a major decrease in quality of life. And they um, face a lot of depression and lowered mood. And there is a study that found that physical exercise performed in water has positive effects on some of the factors that influence mood and quality of life so that was interesting
0: and that's definitely something directly applicable to recreational therapy too oh right? definitely like i'm not cutting holes in anyone's skull but i could yeah. do aquatic therapy exactly. um yeah. yeah sounds like fun if nothing else i mean no <laughs> recreational therapy is supposed to be more than fun But more it does than fun. sound fun
1: <laughs> fun with the meaning
0: yes <laughs> all, all right, right. All um I wanna jump into insulin therapy. I remember hearing about that one in class and I was like, holy crap, that's not a good idea. Yeah. Um that it basically the idea is you induce hypoglycemia in someone. Um this would have been performed as someone was um institutionalized and just as someone who is an EMT, I was like, um, that's not good. Obviously, body needs blood it needs sugar you have your blood glucose level too high you get hyperglycemic too low hypoglycemic Mm um both hyper and hypoglycemic can lead to mental status changes i guess down to a coma obviously with the because that's what they're doing but ultimately like you need blood sugar to live and i think if you're Restricting that enough so that somebody is not conscious, like that's just that is extremely unethical. Yeah, it
1: doesn't seem like something you should mess with. And no,
0: I mean we obviously still sedate people today for reason, but we don't say, "Here's some insulin, hope your blood sugar doesn't go too low." Like that's yeah, bad. Yeah, like
1: for people with diabetes. That oh makes oh man. Spells. Yeah. And for mental illness. Yeah. My
0: medical director at one of my jobs, I know he, he made a big point. If you have a patient with an altered mental status, you better be checking blood sugar. Mm-hmm. And it's probably just because that's something we can treat if it's too low. The point being is that it can cause major problems. So yeah. that's just, it's bad. Don't do it. Don't do it, kids. <laughs> there are better that's ways to deal with mental health. Um, uh, Did you want to do the, well, I'm going to tell you what you want to do.
1: Well, I have something about straitjackets really quick. Oh, please do. Yes. I know we didn't talk about that a ton in class, and I won't go too deep into it because I feel like that's something that a lot of people already know about. But I found an interesting article, or not article, sorry, quote from a Scottish physician who was all about using straitjackets. He was really into them. He said that restraining the anger and violence of madmen is always necessary for preventing their hurting themselves or others. But this restraint is also to be considered as a remedy. Restraint, therefore, is useful and ought to be complete, but it should be executed in the easiest manner possible for the patient. So basically he's saying that it's not only a protection for those who are performing the restraint, but it's also a remedy for the one being restrained, which just doesn't really make sense to me because I know, I guess I can't really speak for myself because I don't have a mental, mental illness, but just imagining someone with schizophrenia or going through an episode of panic, being restrained is probably the last thing that they want, right? So I don't understand how that could be a remedy. Um, but
0: It's probably a remedy for the caretakers. You're like, here, just go there. Yeah, I have to exactly. Deal with you.
1: Um, it just,
0: which, interesting. I w- yeah, that is interesting. I mean, obviously there are some forms of restraint still used today. Yeah. Um, be they um, chemical or physical. Uh, and again, I remember this coming up in class. I mentioned that on my the ambulances I work, on. we carry both chemical and physical restraints because mm-hmm. people might be hurting themselves, or they might hurt us, or maybe they're just freaking out. We at least at least calm them down. We yeah. have the um, versed, but I mean it still has its place. I think obviously, but not like a I'm not saying like sticks on in a straight jacket somewhere, but sometimes mm-hmm. you do have to restrain people to keep them from totally. harming themselves or others. I
1: totally understand that. It's just kind of I don't know. I feel like it'd be more of a worst case scenario. Yeah,
0: no, it's not like a, a, a end
1: common.
0: all be all great yeah. treatment. It's a crap. We got to do something. Yeah, <laughs>
1: totally. Um, um, so I have something that matches all therapy. Do you have anything to touch on before I?
0: Um, not on that. Nope.
1: Go for it. Okay. Awesome. So. Metrazol therapy is something that I found really interesting. It was introduced in 1934, mainly used to treat schizophrenia and psychosis. And so a physician from Budapest actually kind of pioneered this metrazole therapy movement, if you will. He would inject metrazole into a patient's muscles to induce convulsions. That's brilliant. The whole thought process behind this was basically that convulsions would allow all that negativity to kind of escape, and for... I don't even know how they explained it.
0: I was thinking maybe this would make sense, but now it doesn't. No,
1: it still doesn't make sense (laughs) to me
0: either. Because I know at least in a seizure, you have so much... Like, if someone has a grandma stereotypical seizure, you've got this brain activity going, and your brain kind of resets itself. And so I was thinking maybe they'd come from that sort of idea, but it sounds like they weren't.
1: And you talked about insulin coma therapy, Mm -hmm. and... Metrazole was even stronger than that and more difficult to control. Oh, great. That's great. Yeah, insulin therapy caused a few side effects, but metrazole convulsions were so severe that they caused spine fractures in 42% (laughs) Holy crap. Yeah, they were pretty intense. So they're
0: basically just, wait,
1: yeah, did it involve um, electricity at all? No, but we'll get into that. They kind of led to the whole electroconvulsive shock therapy. Okay. Because metrazole was discontinued in the late 40s, and it's no longer used. Okay, that's good. But it led to the electroconvulsive shock therapy, which is still used today. And it's not used as much because of the new drugs, such as antidepressants and antipsychotics that are more effective. Mm -hmm. But it is still used. Yeah,
0: And I think it's interesting that that can be effective. Um, The other thing is, I wonder... I didn't look into the history of how this started, or cardiac care started but sometimes you have to shock the heart too for it to work or work yeah. better and I wonder if there's any relation I mean, that would be worth looking into just out of curiosity
1: like any um, similarities yeah if that
0: originated from the same idea or if I don't know but yeah. obviously uh, yeah that's interesting and um I put in my notes from class that uni offers electro therapy it's yeah fun fact But my understanding is it's basically, yeah, a last resort. You've tried other treatments, you've tried meds, you've tried therapy, and it's probably would be my understanding, assumption for it.
1: Yeah. And Uh. before they did the electric shock therapy, they actually tried out different kinds of physical shock briefly just to see if maybe they worked a little bit better. So they would induce fever by means of radiomagnetic microwaves. That does not sound healthy. Um, It also says transient brain anoxia induced by breathing a mixture of oxygen and nitrogen, which would lower the body's temperature. Yeah, it also lower the amount of oxygen going to your brain, hence anoxia. That's great.
0: That's how you cause brain damage.
1: Obviously none of those really worked. They were all abandoned in favor of ECT, which was not only more reliable, but it was also cheaper. So a lot of people used it as the shock therapy of choice.
0: Interesting. So we use that today. Hopping into other things we use today, there's obviously medications. You could do a whole, talk a whole long time about meds. Yeah. Um, Obviously, they're, I don't know what's obvious. Back up. They can be, um, they can be really helpful. I personally take one for my obsessive pulse disorder, and it helps me a lot, Um, but and I lucked out the first med that I tried I've only been on one and it works but a lot of people have to try different combinations different drugs to get ones that work there's the side effects that can just be horrible if not annoying um and sometimes they just don't help people like they'll try and they just don't yeah um we also have cognitive behavioral therapy um which basically is the premise is you can unlearn unwanted reactions um, DVT, which could be considered part of CBT, um, common for borderline? dialectical
1: behavioral therapy. Right? Thank you,
0: I couldn't remember. <laughs> um, I believe borderline personality disorder. Um, there's EMDR, which is eye movement desensitati- desensitization and reprocessing for trauma. Treatment of traumas, type of psychotherapy. That one's really interesting
1: yeah, to I mean, me. Like
0: the, they're like have you move your eyes or do other movement. I yeah. don't know how it all works, but I.
1: I actually saw a Uh book about that the other day at Barnes & Noble. Oh, you did? I thought about buying it because I just want to learn more about EMDR because it seems really interesting, (laughs) but I ended up picking a different one, sadly. (laughs) That's okay. (laughs) Books are expensive.
0: Um. Other things, obviously, you might go see a psychologist, psychiatrist, mm-hmm. um, more for, like, talk-type therapy. A social worker can provide that. And then, mm-hmm. obviously, there's recreational therapy. Recreation therapy. Oh, wait. Before I hit on that, I did want to talk about, briefly, conversion
1: therapy, because that one is yeah. interesting. That kind of goes full um, circle back to religion, how we started out, because a lot of conversion therapy done today is due mainly to religion and religious beliefs. Yeah.
0: Um... Just a little history on that. If I'm not mistaken, homosexuality used to be um, in the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, Mm -hmm. for mental diagnoses, I think. Something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, DSM, we know what that is. Okay, um, I wanted to just pop in here. First of all, I'm going to correct myself. It was the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, not Diagnoses. Um, so currently um, we use the DSM-5, um, it's been updated over time, I'm sure it will be updated again, hence the 5. Anyway, um, it is utilized by individuals who within their scope of practice can diagnose um, by laying out what specific diagnostic criteria exists for different mental health disorders. Um, while recreational therapists may not diagnose, it's definitely a useful tool. Um, if you need to make diagnostic protocols. Obviously that's a, a great place to look. Um, if you wanna know some things that maybe you should look for as you're going through the API process and assessing your clients. Maybe you look at the different signs and symptoms of depression and you can at least have that as a heads up, obviously every client's different. Um, but, or as you're planning overall treatment for um, people with mood disorders, you can look at what are common areas that people with mood disorders could um, benefit from going over in therapy. Um, so the DSM, we don't diagnose, but it can be useful. Um, I'll pop back in in a minute. But that's all I got for right now. So, where I left off was talking about how homosexuality used to be part of the DSM. It's not currently. Um, and conversion therapy is used to, in essence, tr- quote unquote, treat homosexuality. Um, it's not effective and it's, it's not evidence based either. It's just bad. Um, but it's still used, some people that's still provide it. Um, there was that. Push for a bill or something in Utah recently about okay. that. Um, it didn't pass, right? I don't think it did. I'm not sure. But, I don't think so. Um, I think it wasn't well written at the point, anyway. Okay, hi again. I am popping back in regarding this bill that went through and didn't pass. Um, this was House Bill 399. Um, and I'm not the best at looking at bills; they're confusing and legally written. But it looks like it's called the Prohibition or <clears throat> Prohibition of the Practice of Conversion Therapy Upon Minors. Um, bill sponsor being Representative Craig Hall, with uh, substitute sponsor Representative Carrie Ann Lizenby. Um, so this bill. I'll just read a little from it. It says, this bill prohibits certain mental health therapists from providing conversion therapy to a minor. Um, it limits the application of the prohibition and makes a violation of the prohibition unprofessional conduct. So, I think I'd heard this somewhere. It says only certain mental health therapists can't provide conversion therapy. Anyway, that's probably part of, that might have been part of why I heard that people weren't very happy with this bill anyway. Um... Anyway, that's just a little more on that bill. Again, it didn't pass. Definitively, it didn't pass. Not just, I think, as I said a moment ago. Um, so there you go.
1: Anyway, that's interesting.
0: There's also gender dysmorphia, which is still in the DSM. Which right. is an argument whether or not that is a mental health disorder. It depends who right. you ask. Um. Okay. So, a great way to not build rapport in a good therapeutic relationship with your client is to not even know the name of their diagnosis. It is gender dysphoria, not gender dysmorphia. I don't know where I got that from, but it's wrong. Disregard. Um, just wanted to put that out there. It used to be called gender identity disorder. Fun fact. Um, anyway, having a therapeutic relationship is super important and knowing your patient's diagnoses or client's diagnoses is a good place to start. Um, so anyway, Learn from my mistakes. It's gender dysphoria. Um, that's a hot button issue. I'm not sure if they really treat that. I know if someone feels transgender, they might have hormonal treatments or mm-hmm. surgical procedures, but that's to make them more aligned with the gender they identify with, not to try to undo the fact that they feel like they identify exactly. with that exactly I don't know. I'm not familiar with that. But again, something to be interesting to look at. Now we can go to there. Sorry. <laughs> no, you were good. I was good. like, hold on, this is interesting. You were good. Um, so I think one of the biggest things today, well, obviously, recreational therapists are employed at um, to provide help in mental health facilities, um, such as rehab-type facilities, acute, mm-hmm. um, or inpatient psychiatric. They have a lot to offer. We can use, like, the aquatic therapy that came from mm-hmm. hydrotherapy. Um, yeah. I think religion still, it does play a huge role like you were talking about, yeah. and but I think today we can use it in spirituality overall, maybe sometimes not religious, but be spiritual, um, to help treat patients. I know for me, um, it's had um, religion, spirituality has both negative and positive implications on my mental health. Yeah, um, We don't need to necessarily shy away from it. People can believe what they want, and spirituality could really help someone.
1: And at the same time I think there's a difference between religion and spirituality I think you can find religion through means other than, or sorry, spirituality through means right. other than religion right, right. and I think that's kind of what rec therapy strives to do because I know like nature based interventions help people find spirituality in nature and mm-hmm. Absolutely. stuff like that so I think that's something really cool that rec therapy has that some other professions don't necessarily have mm-hmm.
0: I think another thing is we can be aware of kind of the misleading thoughts people have about mental health um, that could be related to past treatment. Someone yeah. may not want to see treatment, not just because of a stigma of like they're, mm-hmm. they're weird or they're psycho or anything, but also because they might have heard about some of these crazy treatments people have done exactly. and just be like, I'm good, I don't want to get help. But they could still potentially get a lot of
1: help that would be um, much more ethical and evidence-based than Definitely. some of the treatments provided in the past. And I think part of our job as rec therapists is to advocate for our clients and advocate for what we're doing. Right. And if we don't believe in what we're doing, then how are we supposed to advocate for it, right? Yeah. So I think we need to just continue to become more educated and more aware of the history of what we're dealing with. Mm-hmm. And Yep, and stand up for
0: the people who may not Yeah. to absolutely. stand up for themselves or, or yeah. Again, mental health is not always fun, there still is that stigma. Oh,
1: um, for sure. Most definitely. But I think it's getting much better. It is. It's improving a lot. I think we still have a lot, a lot to improve on, and I think there's a lot more research that should be done, uh, mostly in rec therapy. I feel like there's a lot of lack in research. And not just in mental therapy. health,
0: just rec therapy. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but I think it's getting a lot better, and that makes me really excited for the future and to jump into the profession and be able to get my hands dirty in that stuff. <laughs> I think it'll be awesome.
0: It'll be it'll be an adventure that's yeah. for sure. Yeah. Yeah, there's so much we don't know about mental health though. I know. It's it kind of like I don't know what we don't know. That's how much I don't know. Yeah. To quote, what is that's some silly Disney movie that probably is like culturally appropriating <laughs> someone. So my apologies if anyone's offended by that statement. But the point being is there's so much like even the physical body, I'm sure there's a whole
1: ton we don't yeah. even understand. Definitely. Like cancer. <laughs> Definitely. But thinking of the strides we've made in the past, like, 200 years, we've, well trained think. drastically the way right. we treat mental health. And the way I mean, we view it. they did set the bar pretty low,
0: so was it wasn't too really hard,
1: hard to put <laughs> <it>? um, <laughs> But, yeah. I agree. Um, all right, well, that's about I think, all I have. Is that all yeah, you I think Yeah, I think we're good. Perfect. Okay, hey, well, thanks for tuning in. Catch us next time on our <laughs> podcast.
0: I don't know if there will be a next time, but if there is, it would be a party. It will. <laughs> Okay. see ya peace out